Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights, 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 lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Hi, I'm Zach DeSutter. I live in Austin, Texas, and I am playing the part of the Drifter. Hello, my name is Jeremy Wilkins. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I am playing the part of Bo. Hi, my name is Autumn Allison. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee as well, and I'm playing the part of Billie Jean. And I'm Rodney Strong. I live in Chattanooga, and I'm playing the role of Charlie. Lights up. Billie Jean is wiping down the front counter while Charlie sits at the counter reading a newspaper and nursing a cup of coffee. A table is located downstage of the countertop. Drifter, a polite, intense young man, enters the diner and sits at one of the tables. Billie Jean approaches as he sits down. Hello. Welcome to Billie's Diner. What can I get you? He stares blankly at Billie Jean and looks at the tabletop. Are you hungry? Would you like something for dinner? Well, let me just tell you about tonight's specials. First, we got meatloaf with gravy and mashed potatoes. And second, we got spaghetti and sausage. You know, I made the tomato sauce myself from scratch. Maybe we could start with a cup of coffee. Is it always so hot around here? Are you new to Beaumont? Yeah, just drifting through. Well, this time of year, it just settles in at 90 degrees and it stays there, even at 8 in the morning. The humidity is honestly what bothers me, and I've lived here all of my life. Thank goodness for the air conditioning. That's what it is. I've been in the desert, but that's just a different type of heat. Oh, you mean like Midland? Um, Kuwait. I manned a 25mm on a Bradley during Desert Storm, 1st Infantry Division. I'm from Buffalo, New York. It gets hot there, but not like this. Of course, you don't get a foot of lake effect snow down here either. Lake effect snow? What's that? It's white, it's cold, it's snow. just happens to come off the Great Lakes. Ever see snow before? Oh, not really. Only in magazines. I don't really travel much. Traveling is all I do these days. It doesn't look too busy in here tonight. Uh, why don't you take a load off your feet and I'll show you where I'm headed next. We're right here. I'll stay for a few more days to pick up some money doing some construction work. Then I'll continue moving west. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Invictus. Got an old army buddy located here in Arizona. He's letting me stay a while. Good thing too because he lives in a nuclear free zone, you know. A nuclear free zone? What do you mean by that? Well, let me show you. You see all these red circles? Those are prime nuclear targets. Places where the Russians or maybe the Chinese will drop a missile or two. A few places are obvious, like big cities. There's also a lot of rural targets, too. Now, you see right here? Well, that's where Michael lives, you know, my buddy from the Army. Right there in Kingman, Arizona. No one's going to bomb that place. Well, why the hell would anyone want to bomb Beaumont? Take out their oil refineries and chemical plants, I suspect. Sorry about eavesdropping on your conversation, Billy Jean. An occupational hazard, well, I guess. Charlie here is an editor at the local paper, which means he's professionally nosy. I assume I don't need to ask you to come over. Well, I don't mind if I do. The drifter is less than pleased. I didn't say that Beaumont would be bombed. Not directly, that is. But you'd be probably get caught in the radioactive fallout from Houston and New Orleans. Well, that's why I put you in the red zone. Seems a bit depressing, son. Like this cold cup of coffee, which reminds me, a young man like you should be focusing on more positive things, like pretty girls. Uh, I thought I was, until you decided to join us. I've been around a while. 
but I've never seen anyone try to impress a girl with a Rand McNally roadmap or paranoia. Well, there's nothing wrong with a dose of realism. At least I'm not blind. I see the changes around us, and I'll be prepared for them. Changes? Do either of you want anything other than coffee? Like something that might help pay my monthly bills around here? I'm fine, Billie Jean. You're always fine, Charlie. And you? Anything else? I just picked a pie. Apple, my wife keeps nagging me about my waistline. How about a piece for this young man over here? Anything to cut into this gloomy mood. Charlie winks. The drifter gives a small smile. Thanks. I'm just trying to do your gastrointestinal system a favor. I love Billie Jean. But I don't want you to go and drink that coffee on an empty stomach. Jesus Christ, Charlie. Leave my customers alone. I'll tolerate your ass tying up a stool at my counter for most of the day drinking my coffee, but I don't have to tolerate your manners or your smart mouth. As Billie Jean brings over the pie and refills Charlie's cup of coffee, Bo enters the diner. Bo is a Jefferson County chief deputy. Hi, Bo. I got a roast beef sandwich already made for you in the back. Can I get it for you? Do you have time to sit a while? Well, hello, Charlie. You're making the world right? Probably less than you. Of course, this young man may be more of a cynic than I am. In fact, you were planning to tell me about it. How did you put it? Changes? Oh, I see. A rebel rouser. Just like Charlie here? Hardly. I just got out of the army. That don't mean nothing. George Washington was in the regular army too. Before he switched sides. So were most of the Confederate generals. You get to read a lot of books when you work the night shift. I like the history ones myself. And Charlie here, well, we've had more than our fair share of political discussions over the year, haven't we? It's been my experience that military men have never been hesitant to speak their minds. Uh, at least when asked. The drifter looks at Charlie and Bo, deciding if he wanted to push on with his viewpoint. I see. Well, would you agree that there's a bunch of stupid laws out there? You of all people should know what I mean. Actually, I don't. I spend most of my time enforcing what I might call biblical laws, keeping people from stealing or killing each other. Those are laws from God. The problem are the laws from man. I know all about the system and its rules. It passes a lot of stupid laws. In what way? Most of the time, the system does us no good. It taxes us to death. It takes away our freedoms. It's not to put people like us down. Sometimes I wonder if we're better off with no government than a depressive one. Let me give you an example. I fought in Desert Storm. I got the Bronze Star. I was top gunner in my unit. I used that skill to decapitate an Iraqi soldier in my first day of battle. I gave my country, what did Lincoln call it? My full measure of devotion. And you know what happens after I'm honorably discharged? I get this letter from the government. It tells me that the army made a bookkeeping error and overpaid me by over $1,000 and they want their money back. Now, can you imagine that after all I had gone through serving my country? I'm not sure if one bureaucrat's mistake makes a government oppressive. I'm not alone. There are a lot of angry people out there. Read about the militia movement or the Turner Diaries. A lot of folks are tired of the interference from the system and just want to live on their own. People are sick of it. They know America is strong because we got good people, not because we have good government. And what's your solution, son? Well, what do you mean? You seem to be advocating for no government, which to me seems like no answer. Someone always takes charge in the end. Who are you suggesting should do that? The people, of course. Well, now, I guess you have me a little confused since I thought the people are in charge. Or maybe you're looking for a different sort of people. I'm not sure what is worse. Your unfortunate feelings about our democratically elected government, or that you haven't touched that lovely piece of pie. May I? Charlie reaches over and takes a small piece with a fork. You know, when I was your age, there were a lot of us unhappy with the government too. I had friends being shot at in Asian jungles, Billie Jean's father was one of them. Did you know we played football together down at South Park High? Your daddy was a shitty SOB. Too fast to get your arms around, but still powerful enough to knock you over. 
I probably tackled him a few times in practice, but not too often. I seem to remember watching him run forever while I pulled grass out of my teeth. He was good enough to get scholarship offers. A&M wanted him badly, but so did his family. They needed someone to run the restaurant. And just like that, he missed an easy chance to get a draft deferment. The night before he was to take the bus to Camp Pendleton, we sat in a bar a few blocks from here, drinking ourselves senseless and talking about all that stupid stuff that you say when you know you're screwed and you wonder if you'll ever find a way out. We stayed up till five in the morning. I was hungover for two days. When he came back, the Billy who returned to Beaumont was not the Billy I loaded onto that Greyhound bus. He saw too much stuff over there and he had to start drinking a hell of a lot to stop seeing it. He had these big hands. You know, I think that's what I remember the most. We went to a 4th of July parade one day on College Street when I was a little girl. And he held my hands so very tight. It's a funny thing. I think he was more afraid of losing me than I was of losing him. It was hot, like it always is around here. But there was a nice breeze too that day. I had this new dress and he spent a lot of time showing me off to his friends. Everyone was smiling and no one was talking about nuclear free zones or stupid laws. They were just there to celebrate the holiday. Then Dad lifted me up and put me on his shoulders so I could see the bands playing. I leaned into his neck and I had the smell of Old Spice aftershave. Old Spice always reminds me of my dad. One of the bands started to play the national anthem and Dad joined in the singing. Off-key and loud, <laughs> but no one really minded. Then afterwards, a lot of people came up to him. They shook his hand or patted him on the back, and Dad would smile just a little bit and thank a few folks. Then we headed back home. He bought me some popcorn and let me sit in the front seat. The AM radio was on. I mean, that's all we had back then. And it started playing this song about buttercups. And we both sang as he tapped his finger on the steering wheel. You know, I think that was the happiest day of my life. Then one Saturday morning, he kissed me on my head and he told me to be his good girl and to take care of my mom. He was supposed to go to Bridge City for some fishing, but instead he drove into a tree a mile from the house. Quite clear there. No skid marks. The police always wondered about that. You have to remember that back then there were a lot of noble ideas floating around. We were supposed to be fighting for something, but then Billy found out that something was simply survival, which is probably what ultimately broke him. But even after Billy returned, filled with bitterness and bile and booze, I can assure you, if you repeated what you just said about the government and all that, he would have broken your jaw. We're talking ancient history here, Charlie. You want a lesson from Vietnam? To me, it just confirms that the government doesn't care about you. It just takes from you. It takes your money from taxes. It takes away your right to defend yourself with all these gun laws. When the government starts to take away your right, it breeds contempt for all laws in general, which invites man to become a law unto himself. So what are you suggesting, son? That you're bigger than the law? Now, as you might suspect, I have a tendency to read a little more into what people say. Sort of my way of staying ahead of things. So do you mind sharing what your plans are, son? I plan to finish this piece of pie, pay my bill, and head for Arizona, deputy. Drifter takes a few more bites in uncomfortable silence as Bo and Charlie watch. He takes another sip of coffee, decides it is time to leave. How much do I owe you, ma'am? Well, with tax, 85 cents for the coffee. I'll charge Charlie for the pie. Thanks. The drifter stands, reaches into his pocket for some money, and pulls out a small notepad and a pencil. Here, keep the change. 
He writes something down on the paper. It's a big, wide world out there, Billie Jean. If you ever get tired of Beaumont and want to see a little more of it, you contact me here. Excuse me, son. One more thing. That's a long drive you got ahead of you. I know how you feel about the rules, but stay within the speed limit, okay? For safety's sake. The drifter looks at Bo. A small moment that ends when he nods. Then he turns to Billie Jean and gives a genuine smile. It was nice meeting you. The drifter leaves. Creepy fella. Yeah, but that don't give both of you the right to chase him away like that. A customer is still a customer no matter how odd he might sound. And I need those customers. You don't have to be so suspicious all the time. Or so mean about it. I'm sorry, Billie Jean. I can't help it sometimes. It's just a part of the job. Uh, weeding out what's just words and or something a little more sinister. You know that poor boy was just speaking his mind after a long, hot day at a construction site. <laughs> I bet if we arrested everyone, who had something bad to say about the government, Bo. Jefferson County would have to build a few more jails. Uh, that's the problem. It's never cut and dry. Let's say this fellow revealed some master plot against the government. There's a big difference between words and actions. He still needs means. He still needs motive. He still needs opportunity. Funny that a person like this fella goes around complaining about his rights when it's his rights that allow him to complain in the first place. Of course, there's always some gray areas. Well, I don't know too much about gray areas or the current state of the liquor laws in the city of Beaumont, but do you mind if I fortify this coffee in honor of old friends? All this talk has reminded me what a good man your daddy was. I should have become just as bitter as that fellow who came in here. I just never did. I moved on. Unlike your daddy, war does something to you. Changes your perspective. It sure changed Billy. Maybe it changed that fellow too. How many people really plan to break the law, Bo? How often is it just a random act? I guess the real question is, how vigilant can you really be about anything for that matter? Exactly the question that keeps me up at night, Charlie. And I thought it was just Billie Jean's coffee. Well, Bo, if you ever get tired of putting bad guys away, we could always use a short order cook around here. Now, people usually don't shoot the cook. It depends on the food. Well, thanks for the sandwich, honey. I have to get... By the way... What was that fella talking about, about uh, seeing the world? <laughs> you know, I told him I've never seen snow. Must have given him some ideas. Well, I don't think he's going to find much snow up in Arizona. Um, unless he's going to the mountains, of course. You know, I never caught that fellow's name. Oh, it's right here on this piece of paper you gave. McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh. <laughs> well, he must be miles away from here by now. Not my worry. Good night, folks. Bo exits. Charlie sits in silence. Billie Jean cleans up Bo's place. You're suddenly quiet, Charlie. Just an old man lost in his thoughts, Billie Jean. My thoughts say that a slice of apple pie might be mighty fine. Lights fade. Turn away from me, darling. I'm begging you to. Help me, I'm falling in love with you. Hey, everybody. It's Gary, the producer for Lights Up, Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. F-R-E-E. That's right, free. Um, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything 
but you can make money from your podcast and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So do like we did. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, or anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm to get started and create your podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Lights Up Season 2. Um, as many of you know, we are having sighting guest co-hosts this season because our wonderful co-host Christy is having twins. And today I am joined by Shannon, our guest co-host for this episode. Shannon, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, yes, my name is Shannon Bilyeu, and I graduated with a master's in theater from Kansas State University, and I am currently serving as vice president of a board of directors for a community theater in Chickasha, Oklahoma. We are so excited to have you here, and I think it's going to be interesting to hear about your perspective, especially being in Oklahoma with today's play, which you just heard was Vigilance by Michael Sockel. And we are joined by Michael right now. And um, do you prefer Mike or Michael? Uh, Mike's fine. I, I was I was I was in radio at one time, and they always said use a one-syllable first name and a two-syllable second name. So then I ended up being Mike Sock. Well, we're so happy to have you. Thank you so much, and thank you for letting us use your play, Vigilant. Um, Shannon and I were discussing the play prior to this interview, and one of the things that kept coming up is um, how layered it is and um was that intentional on your part yeah I, I i would say that you know as i look at my plays uh they follow that type of pattern i mean you start with an underlining story and then you try to build dialogue that makes that story move along and feels natural and yeah i i think that what happens is layers build upon layers and uh, this is a play you know the funny thing when you think about this play this play was written in 2014 and yet it's really relevant in today's post pandemic world because it's it's about how much can we control how much can we create a hermetically sealed world uh when i first wrote the play um you know in in the focus was more on evil and that was a driver for me behind this play but this this layering effect i think occurs if you do a a good job of thinking about the different characters and try to give them all their own space, that layering almost automatically occurs. One of the things that we were discussing uh, about the play, this feels very humanizing for the drifter. And, and you said initially the play began for you about evil. Putting that at the very end allows you to create this very human character. Can you talk to us about how you went from thinking about evil to landing with where you are in this play? Yeah, you know, so when I started attacking this play, and it's been rewritten several times, and every time I rewrite the play, most of the rewrites involve the drifter. Uh, more elements to make the drifter feel authentic and to feel human. So there was a lot of research in this. I mean, Timothy McVeigh really did carry around a Rand McNally map with uh, these red hot spots. He... Uh, could have gone through Beaumont, Texas in 1992 because he was driving to Arizona to, to, to stay with his friend. Um, Evictus was his last statement. He did serve uh, in Iraq. And, you know, all of these little details when you put in, he was from Buffalo as well, helps build a kind of authentic foundation. And from that authentic foundation, now you have the ability to make him feel and be perceived not as a monster, but as a human being who did something that was monstrous. And there's a big difference between those two things. And the dialogue that he is expressing is not too far removed from the dialogue that we were listening to in 2020. Uh, you know, there are people who feel this way about the government. There are people who feel frustrated and don't have an answer. Uh, I think that's why many of them gravitated to President Trump because President Trump was offering them an answer that aligned with their perception of how they saw uh, the country 
as it is today and in this particular case uh, in this play back in 1992. I was telling Dan that I, I don't I remember the event I remember Timothy McVeigh's name but I, I didn't know a whole lot of the ins and outs and all the details so as I was researching I realized that you gave us so many hints before the reveal what you had just mentioned the military background the going to Arizona um, the map with the red circles on it the Invictus and all these things and I even found it was interesting that we have characters Billie Jean who talks about her father Billy and Timothy McVeigh's father's name was William. And I thought that was a really interesting tie-in, whether or not it was intentional. But you've given us all these clues, and then at the very end, you find out who it is. And I was just, I was happily pleased with that. I totally missed it the first time around. And then when I went back to listen, I was picking up on all these hints Well, you were thank you, us. Shannon. And I think it was very important to also tie in the Vietnam War era as a, as a counterpoint. Um, not to give a plug to another streaming service, but you know, Apple TV right now has this uh, documentary series of 1971. And I really encourage people to watch this because I, I did live through it. I, I am a little older than I look, but I, did, I, I, I lived through the early 70s as a kid. And I did remember it being as chaotic as it was, as it's depicted in this documentary. But Nixon was a bad guy. <laughs> He was not a good guy. And the violence of the era and the all of the sense of America in many ways kind of breaking down, um, and not always in a bad way, because some of the people who were driving that turmoil were groups of people, women, um, blacks, um, uh, uh, folks from the gay community. They were all trying to get their piece of that society to be treated as, as, as equal. And so the tensions that were going on in that period uh, were not that different than many of the tensions we're experiencing today. So to, uh, the, the, the important thing in, in throwing in this, this contrast of the Vietnam War is Charlie po basically pointing out that I had the excuse to go crazy too, and I didn't. And Billie Jean's father had the opportunity to go crazy too. And he didn't. So the fact that you've been exposed to war, that you've been exposed to political turmoil, that you've been exposed to challenges to your own uh, political ideas, uh, does not necessarily mean you're going to fill a truck with fertilizer, park it in front of a federal building and detonate it. Um, I picked up on the fact that you have someone from the media, right, a newspaper editor, you have someone in law enforcement, and then you have a uh, daughter, child of service person, right? Someone from the military. Um, those are three pretty big, important groups when we're talking about someone who is troubled, someone who is dealing with PTSD, someone who is rebelling against the government. Um, we've seen it all within these past few years. Was that intentional on your part that you wanted this to come through these three lenses? Specifically, I'm thinking media and law enforcement. Yeah, they, they were. Um, and, and most importantly of all, that there was the Billie Jean um, element. Um, because as I was doing revisions on the play, uh, she was the other character that I put a lot more energy and, and tried to make her a more active participant in the discussion. Um, you know, you, 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 I, I was in the media for, for many years. Um, I actually worked in radio and television in Beaumont, Texas. And, you know, the media can say almost anything it wants to say, right? I mean, they can say whatever they want to say. Uh, law enforcement, they're a little more restricted. I mean, they have to be careful about how they look at information, um, they have to take a, a, a more jaundiced view about things. And then sometimes we just forget about the average person. You know, the, 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 the person who has opinions and thoughts, um, they are fighting to maintain their opinion instead of the opinion that may be imposed upon them by elites or imposed upon them by friends on social media. Um, you know, I've, I've always had this. I've always had this challenge about this concept of fake news, because to me, it really comes down to you're an intelligent human being, and you should be able to take facts 
and use those facts to come up with a conclusion. And what has happened over time is some people don't want to take that process. They would prefer living in an echo chamber in which they hear the same things over and over again that, you know, basically in essence say uh, what they thought was right. So it's important, I, and I have to tell you, I think it's incredibly important that playwrights incorporate multiple voices in their plays. And the voice that we can never forget, and, and I think this is a defining element of modern drama, you know, if you go back to the 20th century and into today, uh, of the common person. And the common person has something really important to say. And I think Billie Jean has some really important things to say uh, that kind of humanize again. You know, being with her father at a parade and holding his hand and remembering his aftershave, those are very human things that we can all relate to that's different than, say, Charlie being the smart guy who, you know, knows a lot of stuff because, well, he's a he's an editor of a local newspaper. We hear Timothy McVeigh's name at the very end. You could throw that away. Like, you could choose to not, like, build, build, build up to it. Is it more important for the audience to leave knowing that was Timothy McVeigh or knowing that that actually could have been one of many people for you? I love that question, Dana. And I think the answer, the simple answer is... It was important for the play to feel real rather than theoretical. So if you didn't put in the Timothy McVeigh kicker, then what we've just experienced is, you know, 12 minutes of theoretical discussion. And it was important to put in the Timothy McVeigh element because I wanted people to come away from the play saying, that could have happened. He, he, he could have stopped in a diner on his way to Arizona. He could have slipped up somehow and maybe he would. This all this would have never happened. So I think that's that was the goal. Uh, I want people to walk away from a play that I've done, enjoying the story, enjoying the acting, but thinking about something. You know that 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 I that I helped trigger in their minds another way of looking at something. That's fascinating because, in essence, when you're saying that in real time in the play. You have allowed history to give the audience your ending. That's kind of brilliant. I'm just going to let no question. I'm just going to compliment you and say that's kind of brilliant structural way to do things. Not bad for my second play. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, Professionally, I've been a storyteller all my life. Uh, I've been a journalist. I've been in corporate communications. I've been involved in public, uh, political activism um, and uh, a professor. So uh, I've been telling stories for a long time and I've also been, a, you know, a, a, a speechwriter. So I've gotten very comfortable with dialogue and, and I listen to dialogue a lot. I, I mean, you know, that's kind of creepy. You know, it, it sounds a little creepy. You're sitting around listening to what people sound like. But I do listen a lot and I, and I love cadence and I love how sounds kind of have a rhythm and, and, and all that. So I don't know, about six years ago, a friend of mine comes up to me and says, we're doing a, we're doing a play festival. Why don't you write a play? Now, that's an absurd type of thing for a lot of people because there are playwrights who write a play and they put it in their drawer for eight years and it never goes anywhere. And someone comes to me, never written a play, and said, would you write a play? So I went home um, and I wrote two plays in two days. And uh, it, it, I just there was just a natural synergy to the concept. And Vigilance was one of those uh, two plays. And I have to admit, the first draft of Vigilance was, it was okay. It wasn't, it was, it was passable. And I've always been very good about feedback. And I think playwrights or any artist really needs to know how to approach the concept of feedback, which is uh, what my mother always said, which is at the end of the day, it's yours, right? So take what you like, reject stuff that you know out of hand, doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and just find the little pearls that you can say, oh, uh -huh, you know, that's an interesting perspective. Let me see if I can dig that in here a little more. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to write a shorter play instead of those full length and how you go through that process of how you mentioned earlier, finding that arc right away? Yeah. Um, so I've written, I've written over 25 plays and I, I, I've been incredibly fortunate uh, that so many of them have either been produced or, or stage, uh, stage readings. Uh, it's been fantastic. Um, and about eight of those plays are full length plays. And, and some of those full-length plays actually started out as short plays. And what would happen is someone would come up to me and say, there's more story here. 
You, you need you need to do more story. And, and that, by the way, Shannon, is the fundamental cardinal rule, I think, of a short play, which is uh, there was a fellow who ran a theater company down here in the Jersey Shore. Wonderful piece of advice he gave me, which was, your story ends when it ends. You shouldn't be thinking when you write a play, I'm going to write a 30-minute play. I'm going to write a 15-minute play. I'm going to write an hour-and-a-half, two-hour play. What you think about is, how much time do I need to do the story? Now, the, the structure... Of, of a 10 to 15 minute play is is really cool if you if you approach it the right way which is to say I'm not worrying about this 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 sort of uh, restriction that's facing me I'm just thinking about here's my story let's just do it and see how it fits inside the format and I found that many of the stories if you if you have a very laser focus and you and you pare it down and you know, similar to what Dana said earlier, you focus on layering rather than length. Um, you come away with some really intriguing uh, results. Let the story be told and then not worry about the time constraints. And, and you know, sometimes you fall into these little parameters where it's, it's a little too long or it's a little too short. Um, and so you edit maybe to, uh, to the, to the uh, space restrictions you have. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really let the story drive it. Let the story drive the, the amount of time you're going to spend to tell it. What do you, uh, and for example, Vigilance, you said someone was like, hey, why don't you write a play? Uh, what do you what do you do when, it sounds like, you know, no prompt, no parameter works best for you. What do you do when you're given? I got I got a great story for you, Dana. I, 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 it's so funny. Right? So um, a couple of years ago, I was looking at, uh, there, was a, there was a theater company in New York that posted up this, uh, this posting that said, we just got ourselves an old refrigerator. So we're looking for plays that would allow us to use this old refrigerator on our stage. I wrote a story about a haunted refrigerator. You have a refrigerator that's a portal to the other world. You know, I submitted the play. I mean, again, I wrote this so fast. This was, this was, it was, it was an interesting concept. They rejected it. But it wasn't rejected by a, by a theater company in West Virginia which two years ago included in one of their festivals. And I went down and there's a refrigerator and dry ice and people going through a refrigerator. And so never, never immediately reject any source of inspiration you could have because that's part of the fun of the whole thing. You know, that, that's, that's what made it so much fun. The challenge is, is not to let the request get in the way of the story but instead use it as an inspiration uh, to build a, a story. And I love challenges. Well, you know, so I'll give, I'll give you another example of where stories come from. So uh, a friend of mine, um, his dog was, um, uh, had to go to the vet because the dog ate a stone and they had to get the stone out and it turned out they had to do an operation and all that. And uh, my friend Howard said uh, to the doctor, the veterinarian, you have any other weird situations of you know things that you pull out of animals? And he said, "Yeah, you know, I'll tell you an example. We once I pulled out of a, a dog a pair of panties, and I uh, the the woman who owned the dog wanted to know how that's possible because she she knows the dog eats everything. We never put clothes around the floor. And then she says, "What color were those panties?" Uh-oh. And the doctor said they were purple. And he said, "I don't wear." purple panties now that's something i can work with and but here's what here's where this is again this is how this whole thing kind of magically or weirdly comes about so that weekend i went to see a production of a modernized version of seagull it's called oh stupid fucking bird that's it okay yeah. thank you you're the one who can say the upsetting check off i know check off i know all about them but i really haven't looked in too much i go into my favorite resource of the world wikipedia as I'm looking under Chekhov's biography, I noticed that he had a short story called A Woman and Her Dog. And the short story is about an affair. But what Chekhov does is he doesn't end the story. He basically says at the end of the story that the two lovers are going to have to figure this out. So I wrote a play called, and it's modernized. Instead of being set in Russia, it's set in the Jersey Shore. And it's called Purple Panties. Um, so you've talked about all your various inspiration. And it sounds like you came into playwriting and theater because you had always been kind of around uh, speech, writing, media, that sort of thing. 
talk to us about how you kind of balance writing with the rest of your life? Do you have a routine or a specific schedule? Um, how do you fit playwriting into the rest of your life? Well, uh, Dana, my life is completely insane. Okay, it's, it's that simple. I love filling every day with something. So besides the fact that I am working full time, uh, I, I serve on a local school board. At one point I was teaching as an adjunct professor over at NYU. And um, the writing is kind of, I let the writing happen. So it's kind of a drop everything, you're gonna start writing stuff. And I don't force the creative moments. So recently I've had a real burst of creative activity. I've written two plays in the last three weeks. Um, I, I focus, I let, I let the natural process occur and then I don't resist it. I think what happens with creativity with a lot of people is they wanna be creative and they've got ideas but they resist the impulse, the natural impulse of now, let's do it. Um, I've often said to students when it comes to you know writing assignments, it's like you wake up in the morning and there's this big asteroid on your front lawn. And you go outside, you gotta push the asteroid. It takes a lot of energy and effort to get that asteroid moving, but once it moves, you know, it's it's moving. But if you stop, it's twice as hard to get that asteroid going. And then there's, I mean, I, I hope this doesn't suddenly shift the mood into going into a morbid area, but you know, for the last two years I've been, uh, I've been treated for cancer. And that has been an additional, you know, accelerator for me. Uh, I've been so lucky with the treatment that I've received uh, that I've been able to continue to be productive and continue to work. Um, and. I think for me, it's 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 just an affirmation of of a philosophy that I picked up many many years ago, which is you've got to make the most of every day, because every day is so precious. So I think the real answer, Dana, is, and and this is the answer that I would say to any one of us in the artistic community, um, you can't resist the impulse. You 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 can create excuses, and 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 all the like. But what you really have to do is you have to make a commitment to drop everything, focus on getting that that idea, that thought, that expression, that piece of art that has to come out of you and just do it. Well, I actually, one of my favorite moments in, in the play we heard today is after the drifter leaves and Bo and Charlie are kind of talking about, you know, how vigilant a person can actually be about anything. Um, Mike, what were your thoughts or maybe even intentions for this play specifically on how vigilant a person could be? That's a really good question, Shannon, because I don't want it to be too much of a downer. I, I don't want to let people off the hook, right? Um, we have an obligation that if we see something or we sense something or we feel something's not right, we should act upon those things, okay? But what's really important for me with the play is the last lines from Charlie, which is essentially, they've experienced this thing. This person is gone. He's gonna do something we know because we know from history, but he doesn't know that. And he's interested in just having another piece of apple pie. So for us, we have to find the balance between the obsession that there's something wrong and that we have to continue our life. At the end of the day, we have to find that balance, Shannon, of how do you take the warning signals that, that human beings have naturally because they've been built up from the cavemen days when and cavewomen days in which you had to be able to react instinctively to what you saw or that saber-toothed tiger was going to kill you, and balance that with a rational perspective that yeah, maybe that really wasn't anything and let me, let me enjoy that apple pie because that's pretty good right now. I love that and I love that the play is still relevant, like you were saying, just, you know, even though it was written um, years ago and we're still able to relate it now, I feel like that's really beneficial, not just for you as the playwright, but for audiences to come. Okay, so right after the drifter is telling his story about how um, the military says that they overpaid him and he has to pay it back, and he's telling this over you know, eating the dessert and having coffee. And then right after he tells this huge moment that has affected him drastically and he's upset about it, 
uh, Charlie reaches over and helps himself to a bite of his pie. So <laughs> he's just had something else taken away from him and he's trying to, you know, tell this story and possibly connect with these people he doesn't know and their response is to also take something from him. And I just thought that that was really interesting. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I, I didn't really mean to make Charlie as much of a jerk as he is, but he is. But, um, you're, you know, you're right. Yeah, the idea of Charlie coming in there uh, and just kind of taking over uh, is, is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't make him a very sympathetic character, that's for sure. Well, and he's I'll part of that. the media, so it kind of builds into that as well. Like, he just stepped in and took over, and, like, I felt like that went hand in hand. Whether or not it was intentional, I loved it. Are those the type of moments that you craft in in a third or fourth draft? Or are those the kind of things, because it sounds like, based on this interview, it sounds like you are a playwright who really gets to know a character and writes from there and writes from a human person perspective. So are those things that find their way in or are those things that you layer in later in the process? Yeah, I, I think I think the, it's, it's both. Um, a lot of these things uh, do appear in the first draft, but I, I try my best to at least let the director know before they start. This is my vision. This is what I'm thinking. Don't change the words, uh, but but you know, let's talk. It's a dialogue. Director, actors, playwright. Well, and that is the whole point of this podcast. Is you know, so often the actors obviously are at the forefront and then a lot of times directors get recognition, but we don't hear as much about the playwrights. So that is the point. And we have had wonderful, fascinating chats with everyone or publishers in our little episode description. But if you would like to say them out loud, the best way that our listeners can read your works, purchase your works, anything like that, anything you want them to know, we'd love to give you the floor for a few minutes to kind of consolidate that. Well, I mean, I, I, I do have a website, MikeSockle.com. Uh, it's it's not, always, not always kept up to date. Yes, all of my all of my works are on the New Play Exchange. Great. Uh, so people can people can go there uh, and and read anything that they wish to read. Um, you know, I I'm really just interested in in, in getting them out there. So uh, you know, I'm 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 open to a my plays are available for anyone anywhere. And in addition to that, uh, I'm, I'm writing plays all the time, you know, for different, you know, I would love to work with any theater group that said, hey, we need a play about this concept and, oh, well, we'll put something together for you. Um, I'm very fortunate to have a few plays coming up. I've got a, a play that got canceled by the pandemic in New Jersey called um, In Danger of Falling in Love, which has just now been rescheduled for next year. So that that's something I'm looking forward to. We have this, you know, the vigilance. It's terrific. We have um, the play that I'm writing. Hopefully, will be used by the folks up in Union, and uh, I'll be continuously submitting plays here and there to different festivals. But I think I found more success in working with companies, you know, like 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 yours. Excellent, and that's Sockle S O C K O O L. Well, we love to end the podcast by asking all of our playwrights the same three questions so uh -oh. our listeners can kind of track the everybody's answers. So we're going to take those. Um, there's no pressure here. It's just a little final getting to know you kind of thing. Um, and Shannon, you can, you can take it away with the first question. Okay. Here. So what is a word that you really love that would really, that brings you joy? awesome i just love it when someone comes up to me in all different types of conversation and they just awesome they love i love that word that that that's that's a great word um so our second question is we try to avoid using the word favorite because i think people freak out about it so we love to know a place that brings you great joy that is very loved that is emotional nostalgic one of your favorites, a place, a place that holds this emotion or feeling for you? Really interesting question. And I'm going to give you kind of an off-the-wall answer. We love it. I love baseball. And I love, I love that sunny day. You're sitting out. I, I happen to be from Boston, so I'm a Red Sox fan. Wow. And you're out there in the crowd, and the grass is green, 
baseball has this real feeling of immortality about it. It's, it's never changed. It's the same. And yet every game is different. Everything you see is different. Our third and final question. What would be, what is an object that sparks joy? Object that sparks joy? Yeah. Do you have any sort of object that just brings you happiness or has great meaning? Oh, this is going to be, this is exactly the question that 10 minutes after we're finished, I'm going to kick myself because there's going to be something that I should have said <laughs> and I didn't say it. Um, what drives me right now is this feeling of things that I can control in my life to be able to do the things I want to do. And um, I have become very obsessive about that. So if attitude was an object, I'd love to have, I don't, but it's not tangible. So since it's not tangible, I do like to ride my bike on a sunny day, my new, my new electric bike. Well, not, nah, it's been terrific. I've, I've had so much fun talking to both of you. It's been great. Thank you, Mike Sane. <laughs> Thank you so much. Do you enjoy a challenge? Is your imagination stuck in overdrive? Is your attention span shorter than a Cubs World Series streak? Do you want your work read on Lights Up? Then consider entering our one-page playwright competition, Propped. Incorporate three of the following props into a one-page play. A mannequin covered with confessions. A decapitated head in a duffel bag. A stage ghost light. Green cheese. An old-fashioned camera. Two telephones a cloth face mask, and a ring light. Create a one-page play using any of the three items and submit it to lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. If your piece is selected, we will read it at the end of one of our episodes. Now go forth and write. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. And Casey Keelan as the associate producer. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast.